This is about something that lights your fire when nothing else will. This is the Mark Devine Show. This show, we're going to discover and dive in and discuss what makes the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders so courageous. Transform the nature and functioning of our own brain for the better. Go put your virtues in action. Be the best version of yourself. Life is a practice. Day by day, and get wiser and stronger and grow. How do you understand enough about your own mind and psychology and emotions and how you develop a reflective awareness practice to actually get in the driver's seat of your own mind? We go in-depth with people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, meditative monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and more. Every episode turns our guest experience into actionable insights that you can learn from and lead a life filled with compassion and courage. I started putting all these little tools in my pocket, started to reflect a lot and meditate. There has to be a balance between movement and rest. It all starts with us. We cultivate these qualities in ourselves. We become a beacon of life for others in the world. Please join us on the journey. The Mark Divine Show. Hoo-yah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Who Podcast. We appreciate you all being here so very much. I like doing this. And today's guest, uh, I think you will like as well. It is Dr. Aaron Cariardi. Dr. Cariardi is uh, a chief of psychiatry and ethics at Doc One Health uh, and chief of medical ethics at the Unity Project. Uh, he was a author. He's an author of the forthcoming book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Surveillance State, which is available for pre-order from Amazon and other online booksellers. You can follow Dr. Cariardi, which I suspect you will want to do after you hear him talking to me here today. Aaron Cariardi.com. Aaron is A-A-R-O-N and Cariardi is spelled K-H-E-R-I-A Cariardi. I, I throw an R in there, which I'm sure I'm not the only one to do that. <laughs> Happens a lot. Really. K-H-E-R-I-A-T-Y.com and uh, Twitter at A-K Cariardi. And uh, just, a, just a quick uh, background for Dr. Cariardi. I uh, went to Notre Dame. We got a philosophy degree and did uh, pre-med. MD from Georgetown, uh, residency at Irvine, professor of psychiatry at Irvine, uh, director of medical ethics at Irvine. And I tell you that history because it makes his, his story and his recent history even more extraordinary. So welcome. Thank you, Drew. It's good, good to be back with you. So let's th – this is sort of a different audience than the last uh, – we last spoke, I believe, on my streaming show, which is over at YouTube, everybody, drdrew.tv. Uh, but that's a different audience than the Corolla faithful here. And these guys are will be very sympathetic and very interested in your story. So that, tell, tell us in, in, you know, not in too much uh, detail. You know, I don't want to get into the – well, maybe we should. We'll see. Tell them what happened. Okay. So the quick version of the story is I had spent uh, the first 15 years of my career, my entire career, as an academic physician at the University of California, Irvine, as you mentioned where half my time was devoted to being a professor in the School of Medicine, specifically in the Department of Psychiatry. And the other half of my time was directing the medical ethics program in the hospital. So I chaired the ethics committee. I did the ethics education for the students and so forth. And I was very concerned when the university started contemplating a COVID vaccine mandate uh, for all faculty and students. And I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago uh, criticizing the university vaccine mandates on the grounds of basically on ethical grounds that these violated central principles of modern medical ethics, particularly the principle of informed consent that adults of sound mind should have the right to make their own medical decisions and decide what goes into their, their body. And after I published that piece and, and went public with my view of vaccine mandates, my own university, uh, University of California, and my branch campus in Irvine uh, went ahead with their vaccine mandate. Can, can I stop and, you? Can I stop real quick? Did, yeah. Did um, were you speaking uh, not quite so publicly, but were people, your peers around you, aware of your opinion? Were you speaking out loud about it before you wrote that article? I, I was. I was trying to get a conversation going among the other medical ethicists at the university and among the university leadership. And I just I just hit kind of a, a stone wall with those efforts, which is very strange because 
prior to that grew, I was part of a, a work group at the UC office of the president that oversees all the, the UC campuses. And we were working on COVID policies from the very beginning of the pandemic. So the ventilator triage policy, the vaccine allocation policy, who should get the vaccines first. Oh, by the way, people, Al- people forget that that chapter of the of the vaccine story where I, I right. got COVID trying to get the vaccine because right. vaccine allocation was what was the, they had a language for it was done uh, with equity or something. It was a word like that. And it was like, yeah, yeah I take care of COVID patients every day. You're going to lose <laughs> me as a, as a provider, which they did. Yeah. It was incredible yeah. because I yeah. didn't, I didn't work for the hospital and I didn't live in the environment that was getting crushed by the COVID. Therefore, I didn't meet their equity. God, they had different language. Do you remember the language they were using then? So, I mean, they, t- they talked about prioritization. They did talk about equity, although it was never quite clear what that word no, I know. meant. It's, it's a very that. elastic term. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there, were, there was in the initial month or two of the vaccine rollout, the demand outstripped the supply. Yeah. And so we had to make those decisions about who should get in line first. And so we were involved in all of those kind of tricky policy issues around COVID. But then when it came time for the vaccine mandate, our group was never consulted. It just came down from on high. And when I saw the first draft of the policy, I said, hey, guys, uh, I have some concerns about this. And Stonewall. Stonewall so by, by whom? By, by the committee or well, by the administration? By the, or By the committee and by the administration. Okay. So I reached out to the UC General Counsel, mm-hmm. you know, no, basically stony silence, which is very strange. These, you know, these were people I had on speed dial and had been working after hours with for months and months and, developing and, policies. And you're a psychiatrist. Did you have a theory what was going on at that time? Um. I was confused at that time, and now I have some theories about what was going. Some of the, some of the financial inducements at work for the system as a whole, I think, played a role. There was this strong sort of uh, mass formation social psychology phenomenon. Okay. We'll, we'll get into that where, later. We'll get, okay, you know, so that can, that was we, at play right away. That would away. take us down a, yeah. a rabbit hole. Well, no, we're going, yes. we're going there, but not just yet. <laughs> At, at the time, it didn't. I, I, at the time, it just didn't make sense to me because yeah. it was it was, um, it was out of character in terms of how yeah, I spent. I spent a lot of the, I spent a lot of this pandemic going what what what, what is going on? <laughs> what's and, happening? And, and what, what's even funnier, uh, funny maybe not haha, but peculiar. You know, I, my dad was a physician and he influenced me a lot in my training over the years and worked alongside him for a little while, and so he's in my head. And uh, during. All that I I had him in my head going wait what what wait a minute but now we had yellow fever and polio and malaria was ag- they they closed the world down because of a respiratory what right well, he would have been like what he would have died again yeah. I swear to God would have been the second death yep. for him it's like a respiratory yep. as opposed to what, what about pol- what it's like oh my God so anyway here we go so now you're stonewalled. So- so uh, long story short, university publishes its policy. I was I had already taken a public stance. I saw students getting steamrolled. Students were reaching out to me saying, I don't qualify for a religious exemption because I'm not a religious person, but I have uh, I have moral or ethical or conscience based reasons for declining this vaccine. And there's I have no recourse. It was almost impossible to get a medical exemption in California for reasons that, again, we can talk about later if you're interested. So I, I felt that in my position as uh, the, the chief of medical ethics at Irvine, I had to do something. So, um, so I challenged the UC vaccine mandate in federal court. I filed a lawsuit against my own employer. And, you know, that's a pretty good way to get on the wrong side of, of your employers to sue them in federal court. But I challenged the vaccine mandate on behalf of people like me who had natural immunity, infection-induced immunity from previous COVID. And I made the argument, which uh, about three weeks ago, the CDC finally endorsed course, my position, of course. that natural immunity was equal to, if not superior to, uh, vaccine immunity. And it was discriminatory to uh, not allow me back on campus, but allow someone uh, else back on campus who had a form of immunity that um uh, you know, by the, their own data submitted to the FDA, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine 
we already knew was 67% effective at best. That was the, the company's own data after their clinical trials. And we had a lot of evidence at that point that natural immunity, at least for those early variants, was 95% effective. Uh, so it was, it was superior. It's, it's somewhat less effective against the newer variants, but it's clearly still superior to the vaccine immunity, and it lasts longer. So that was the basis of my case. It was an equal protection case uh, on 14th Amendment constitutional grounds. That case is still in federal court. Mm. Uh, it, it's it, at the appellate level. We're waiting on a ruling from a judge that's the courts are very backlogged. So I wish I could tell folks when we're going to get a ruling on that. But I, I don't know, hopefully sometime before the end of of the year. But rather than waiting for the court to make a determination in my case, the university moved very quickly uh, to first uh, put me on what they called investigatory leave and then on unpaid suspension. And then they fired me basically as quickly as they could. They got rid of me. And you were a full professor at that point? I was a full professor. Um, I had received the excellence in teaching award from the students three times. I was the only professor who taught courses to the medical students across all four years of the medical student curriculum. So I was very heavily involved, uh, not just in the workings of the hospital and the healthcare system, but in the school of medicine as well. But that, you know, once I challenged the university's policy, none of that really seemed to matter to them. What went into that decision to sue them? That must have been a very difficult decision. You 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 roll it out there as though that's just a moment in history, but I'm guessing, I'm yeah. guessing that a lot went into that. It it was it was a difficult decision. Obviously, um, you know, my wife and I talked extensively about it. She was very concerned about what she saw happening um, with the the forced vaccination campaign as well. Um, so we were certainly on the same page in terms of our ethical and medical concerns about what was happening around us. But obviously, you know, I'm the father of five children and I'm the main breadwinner for the families. So, um, you know, I, mm. it, it, I did not take the decision lightly. And, but basically what it came to, Drew, um, was I was thinking ahead. This was. You know, this was October. This was what August, September. I was thinking ahead to January of, of this year when I teach the required ethics course to the medical students, and I was trying to imagine myself talking to them yeah. about informed consent yeah. in the Nuremberg Code. Yeah, um, talking to them about moral courage and moral integrity. You know, encouraging them. Look, you're a medical student. You're at the bottom of the hierarchy in the hospital power structure. Mm. But if you see something being rolled out that's going to harm patients, you have a duty to speak up and to to tell someone that you see a, a surgeon walking into the operating room and his hands are shaking and he's his breath smells of alcohol and he's picking up the scalpel. You know, you have to blow the whistle. Um, and I just couldn't imagine myself uh, doing that if, you know, when I was in a position to to speak up and say something and do something on something that I, I truly believed in my core violated all the principles that I try to teach medical students, I think I would have just felt like a fraud, mm. right? So I, I think the situation may have been different if I wasn't in that position of the director of medical ethics, if I was just you know, a professor in the School of Medicine. Yeah, I may have just tried to put my head down and, and take care of myself and, and, and figure out a way um, you know, to survive. But I just don't think I would have woken up with a clear conscience. Um, What's kind of interesting. I was in a position of responsibility. I I get it. I I, I totally get it. And you probably, you probably had told them multiple medical school generations, this very story. And now you're in a position to actually stand up and do it. And what's interesting to me is I think a lot, I bet you a lot of what you taught was about monitoring our, not just our, professional peers but our paraprofessional colleagues and things like that mm-hmm. but there there is no antecedent history on what to do when the bureaucratic administration right. both of hospital insurance state federal when they misbehave what are we supposed to do there's no there's no there's history, no playbook, there's for, that. No playbook yeah. for that we've never the yeah. physicians have and this is one of the things I learned during the pandemic I didn't realize how many people are are employees 
and, and that's where that's where I saw the most egregious behavioral <laughs> transgressions. Yeah. I was I never thought my peers would behave like this, but they just did because they were told to. And that was dis- that's one of the many, many, many disgusting uh, yeah. sort of uh, experiences I had during this thing. And it, as you well know, disgust is an extremely powerful emotion, and, and I experience it way more now than I wish I did. But that was sort of the first thing. It's like what you're 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 what you're telling people to go home and come back when their PO two is eighty. What, what? with yeah. no, with no follow up and no. What? What? What are you doing? And yes, I understand that that hydroxychloroquine doesn't seem to work, but try. What, we give them something. <laughs> do something, even if it's Other just follow up. Wait, wait until you get worse. Yeah, yeah until no, you get sick. And so it's, it was interesting. There was an element in this whole story where, um, particularly the so-called cognitive disciplines, non-surgical disciplines, were absolutely completely paralyzed. The surgeons yeah. I noticed were busy, sort of behind the scenes, trying to do stuff. They were like, because I I got calls from so many surgical colleagues going, "What have you seen? What would work? What can I try? What's up?" And that's I think a symptom of the fact that our colleagues, the cognitive colleagues, which is again people that don't do procedures, have been completely owned by clinical pathways, insurance companies, and hospitals, yeah. and surgeons when they open up a surgical field immediately start improvising and using their judgment and nobody That's can right. fuck around with that. And so That's they're right. kind of used exactly. to having this one little yep. area where they can still use their head. Yep. So I th- that was an interesting thing I saw during that whole thing evolve. But there you are. You're in court now and you you did what you had to do and now you lose your job. And I, where should we go from there? So that's kind of the story. And then you went into private practice and now you're telling the story around the world. Is that safe to say? Uh- yeah, I'm telling the story around the world. I'm continuing uh, to do medical ethics and public health and public policy, uh, you know, research and advocacy with some independent think tanks. So I'm at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C. and um, another institute called the Zephyr Institute in Palo Alto. So I've I've been able to recreate um, that aspect of my work and, in fact, expand it in many ways. I have a lot more freedom now mm. uh, to speak and write and, uh, you know, talk to people uh, in conversations like this. The one thing I haven't been able to recreate outside of the university is the teaching. So mm-hmm. I, I will say, Drew, um, I miss the students. I miss the residents. I miss the, you know, the seminar and classroom-based teaching. I miss the clinical supervision that I had at the university. So let, um, let, that let aspect me, of let, my work Let me is, give is, you a, a elder statesman guidance which is that the, that kind of teaching usually kind of wraps up as you as you get older anyway and yeah. you're right now you're teaching this very moment you're teaching you're teaching on a much larger scale and a much larger stage and it's a different population you're teaching but i i would dare say maybe more important or certainly as important okay. as what you were doing before and i understand Thank how important you. i taught too in a, through multiple different disciplines i thought through I taught through Department of Medicine, Department of uh, Adolescent Medicine, and Department of Psychiatry, and I liked it. And you know, for various reasons, I stopped doing it. And that's kind of the way yeah. things go. Um, yeah. But uh, what did you study in philosophy as an undergraduate? What was your sort of field? So I studied a lot of ethics, mm-hmm. um, history of philosophy, from you know the ancients, Plato and Aristotle, all the way up to the modern period. So I've I've maintained a deep interest in philosophy and particularly in philosophical ethics, you know, throughout my training and my career. And it's, it's certainly influenced my approach to public policy and to, to asking, you know, philosophy taught me how to ask questions and how to try to see beneath uh, the surface of what's happening to ask, what are the underlying principles? What are the underlying uh, structures that are driving things? And I think that's that's one thing that um, physicians need to recover is the ability to ask questions rather than just be spoon fed mm. the answers by bureaucrats. You pointed out, I think this is a great insight that surgeons have this kind of zone of autonomy in the operating room. When they open up uh, the patient, they are in charge and they have to think they have to improvise. They have to re- react and intervene. One of the other factors that's happened in medicine a very interesting statistic that uh, when I learned it made a lot of sense out of 
some of what went sideways during the pandemic. So a generation ago, 80% of physicians were in private practice, 20% were for a large healthcare institution. And today that number is flipped, right? So you only have 20% 20 of physicians in private practice working for themselves, able therefore to, you know, not rely on the directives of someone else to, uh, you know, make a living. Now, when 80% of doctors have to answer to the, the corporate, you know, uh, management of medicine, that corporate management of medicine takes on enormous power and can be influenced, obviously, by uh, financial motives, by um, inappropriate conflicts of interest, ties to the pharmaceutical industry, um, you know, inappropriate kind of ties to the government that does not allow them enough uh, independence in terms of making policies. I think all of that helped to create the um, the really awful pandemic <laughs> response yeah, yeah. that we saw. And um, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I've experienced that same disgust. I've, I've never been so ashamed of my own profession. I yeah. thought I would say this yeah. three years ago, but uh, the, the behavior of so many physicians um, who didn't say what they thought and who refused to talk about what they saw during the pandemic mm -hmm. is, uh, I, I think, not a good sign. No, I agree with you. I, I was shocked. Uh, and I do want to get into, in just a second, this new California law, which is astonishing. Yep. So it's not no longer just the hospital insurance and uh, whatever uh, bureaucrats. Now we got a state in, up our ass. But hang on before you yep. do. So, so I want to do a little more mining into what you studied in, in undergraduate so I can sort of get your orientation. Is it more generally the field of virtue ethics? Is that sort of what we're, you were into? Yeah, okay. that's right. So I'm guessing you hung your hat on Aristotle. Yes, Aristotle and some contemporary interpreters of Aristotle. Alistair McIntyre is probably the most well-known contemporary virtue ethicist. He was a professor at Notre Dame. His book, After Virtue, uh, influenced me very deep, deeply. Thomas Aquinas's interpretation of, of Aristotle's virtue ethics. Um, so yeah, the, the virtue ethics basically for our listeners is ask the question, if I act this way, how will that shape my character? What kind of person will I become if I engage in this action? Can, can, I, can and, I stop you? Because I always thought of it more as because it's not Kantian, right? It's not that. That sounds more Kantian to me. It he. I always thought Aristotle sort of led down the road of how to lead a good life, not just yes. be a good person, right? Well, he saw the two as as same. synonymous. Yeah. In other words, um, so the virtue ethicists had this notion, and this is where they part ways with Kant. They had this notion that. Um, that being a good person will actually lead you to happiness and human flourishing. Right. That's right. Yeah. Kant, Kant never said that, you know, doing the right thing would make you happy. In fact, it might make you, it might make you miserable, but you have to sort of grit your teeth and do your duty anyways. Um, whereas Aristotle said, no, actually yeah, acting in a, in a virtuous way and developing the character strengths and virtues in your own life is what will lead you to happiness, health, and human flourishing. So he didn't; he never separated those two things. Although, although not, I don't want to get too deep into this, but you know, Kant felt that duty was its own reward, right? But but although Aristotle talked about the road to flourishing and happiness, he didn't distinguish flourishing and happiness, and we started calling it all happiness. And right. what, what I would That's point right. out is. Aristotle would think that Jesus led a virtuous, flourishing life. wasn't exactly happy all the time in the sense of hedonic tone. But but yes. we we the modern person put hedonic tone on top of his notion of happiness. I think. You've heard me talk about the fact that health insurance doesn't always co cover the cost of a medical emergency flight. Certainly not the full cost. With comprehensive coverage, you can get still hit with a deductible or copay protect your family and your finances with air medcare network membership as a member if an emergency arises the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an amcn provider membership costs as little as 85 dollars a year and covers your entire household every day even when you're away from home that's just pennies a day we all know that 
Things can happen. AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. For a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. Now we're from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You, maybe you're uh, having trouble training your brain to stay in problem-solving mode, particularly when we're stressed and faced with challenges. Therapists can help you become a better problem-solver, make it, well, more likely and easier to accomplish the goals you wish. I've been in therapy. Uh, it's been a very important part of my life, and it's no longer an excuse that you have a stigma against it or you're worried about running into into people. Uh, I've referred family, friends, patients to BetterHelp and been very pleased with the services provided there. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It is convenient, accessible, affordable, entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. You can switch therapists anytime if you want to. They make sure that you are completely happy with what you get. That's right. When you want to be a better problem solver, you can get there by visiting betterhelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. You know it. It's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Roman swipes are convenient over-the-counter wipes that are clinically proven to help you last longer in bed, uniquely formulated to re- reduce the overstimulation without that eliminating sensation altogether. It's in a discreet pocket-sized pack. You just wipe on to the most sensitive parts of the of the genitalia, allow it to dry for about five minutes, and when used as directed, Roman swipes leave no scent or taste, so no one's aware, no one no transfer to the partner or, or awareness of what you're doing here. Safe, effective, no prescription needed. All swipes orders include free two-day shipping and arrive in unmarked packaging. Try today for as little as two seventy-five per swipe. Try swipes today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order. Go to GetRoman.com slash Drew. That is GetRoman.com slash Drew today. One more time, GetRoman.com slash Drew for 20% off. Yeah, that's right. So for, for the ancients, happiness um, was not just feeling good at any particular moment, which right. is what the word has come to mean right. to modern people. So happiness is equated with pleasure. And as you right. point out, Jesus hanging on the cross could not have been very pleasurable right um but it was it was exemplary it was a fulfillment a good of life mission it was a good life yeah. in that sense so yeah. the the greek term if, if we want to go there was eudaimonia which we sometimes tra- translate as happiness but it uh, it really means kind of a good flourishing yeah. life yeah. that fulfills what it means to be a human yeah being. more like well-being and there you would have yeah, a, yeah, a Gandhi or a, yeah. a Jesus yeah. would would be an exemplar of that yeah. kind of. Thing. It, we we took eudaimonia and made it happiness. That was that was a modern thing. That's it's right. Only, it's only the last ten years or so they've revisited it as flourishing. I it comes out of everyone's mouth now really easily as flourishing, but a, that's a new yep. thing. That's a new thing, which that's is right. kind of kind of interesting. All right, so there's the philosophy, and I'm I'm not surprised. That's the philosophical background that that sets you up. Let's jump ahead for a moment to this California law, which I, is on yeah. my mind constantly now. Tell people what that is and what it's going to do. It's just, it's just yeah. draconian. It's just, it, it's just another dis- sort of disgust. But go ahead. Yeah. So thank you for bringing this up. Assembly Bill 2098, which just passed in California, uh, is pr- among the, th- the worst laws that has been passed in this state. Um, in in decades, and that's a you know that's a tough competition. Yeah, that's, that's, that's this a lot state. Bad political ideas. Yeah. Um, this law basically empowers the medical board, and the medical board is what licenses physicians. So I can get fired by the university, but I can go open up a private practice. I could, if someone will hire me, get a job at another healthcare institution in the state. But if the medical board takes away my license. I cannot practice medicine. So this is the most severe and draconian type of punishment that you could inflict on a physician, taking away his or her ability to to practice medicine and and their their whole livelihood. This bill empowers the medical board to discipline, including removal of licensure, any physician who makes statements to a patient that contradict public health guidance on COVID what the law deems 
misinformation. But if you if you look at the law, it defines misinformation as anything that contradicts the public health consensus. Okay, so if I tell a patient, um, yeah, the, the California Department of Health is recommending, uh, let's say that you you get the next booster shot, you know, the bivalent vaccine that just came on the market. Um, but if you want my opinion, I think it might be a good idea to wait until we get the clinical trials data because the FDA is actually approving that. Uh, based on based mice, on mice data, mice data, mice. mice data, and, and previous influenza data. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So you might want to take a watch and wait, cautious approach until we get some more data on that. So if I were to say that to a patient, uh, and the patient were to, you know, report that to the medical board, I could be disciplined for giving misinformation, even though everything that I told the patient was absolutely. And, True. And, because, and again, yeah. And if you were to say that here publicly, like this is the way I might advise a patient, which is the yeah. way you would might advise a patient, which is your job. Anybody can make a complaint now. There's no threshold to whom can make a complaint of why. And they can be totally anonymous. And yep. every single complaint is dealt with with the same um, seriousness as though a crime was observed and the police report came in. Now it's time for you to defend yourself. That's the level at which you have to defend yourself for each complaint. Not all the complaints, each complaint. You could spend yeah. your whole life just responding to these things. Bogged down in, yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's part of the purpose. I think that the law can have, with a few public examples like that, Drew, the law will just have a very chilling effect on all physicians. And I think that's probably its intended purpose. They don't have the infrastructure, the wherewithal to investigate every complaint, but they don't need to. The law, uh, the law with a few public examples, I think will produce a climate in which uh, physicians are too scared to say what they think. Well, and and uh, that's, that's an important observation about our peers. We, we generally behave that way. Like yeah. I remember the reason we had the opioid epidemic, I, I lived through it. The reason we had it was there were several successful cases of criminal and civil action against physicians. Not a ton right. of cases. There were a couple in North Carolina, I think one here in California, yeah. uh, one in Florida, for under-prescribing of opiates. And that caused all doctors to go, uh-oh. I mean, everybody went, uh-oh, I'm not going to prescribe opiates anymore. I'm going to send everybody to pain management. And pain yeah. management believed they, were, they had a white hat on and they were the – the uh, vigilante crowd that was going to overcome opiophobia and opiates were whatever the pain was, ever the, whatever the patient says it, it is, yep. pain controls, whatever the patient says it is. You don't even need a doctor. So you just walk up to a counter and point at what you want. Yeah. So many of my patients died from that. It's it, They're still dying. There's, well, they're in the streets. They're in the streets dying yeah. now before yeah. they died at the hands of the pain management people. Yeah. Uh, it's just that was that. That's how we behave. So you're right. There will be what you call a chilling effect. We'll change direction fast. Well, it, I, I want to just – is there any hope for dealing with this law? I testified in the California Senate against this law and raised the issues of you know, can – Patients cannot trust a physician who has a gag order, yeah. right? You may disagree with your physician's viewpoint or recommendations. No problem. You can always go get a second opinion, third opinion. But I think every patient, regardless of their view on these things, every patient wants to know that if I ask my doctor a question, my doctor is going to tell me what he actually thinks, yeah. not what he is ordered to tell me by some bureaucratic agency in Sacramento. I don't think this law can withstand uh, First Amendment free speech challenge. And so I will be filing a lawsuit soon oh, for good. the nonprofit. Oh, my gosh. Good. Because I was hoping. Challenge this law. Will that put at least a stay on it for a while? Well, I hope so. Yeah. So one of the first things that will happen is that we will file a request or a motion for what's called a preliminary injunction. That's a request to the judge to say, okay, hit the pause button on the application implementation of this law while this case is being heard, right? If this is, if this is under question, um, then we should 
we should at least um, not put the law into effect until the courts decide whether this violates the Constitution. Now, a request for a preliminary injunction is often hard to get, Drew. Mm. Uh, and, and the reason is basically you, you have to have b- before you get to the phase of the, the trial where you get into discovery and fact finding and argumentation, there has to be enough plausibility that you're going to prevail in this case uh, before you pre- present the evidence that the judge says, yeah, I think you're likely to win. I'm going to grant the preliminary injunction. So we may not get the preliminary injunction, but I I have a hard time imagining that this law can withstand uh, First Amendment free speech constitutional scrutiny. Which brings up the next topic for me is what happened to our public health system and what have we uncovered as a – well, first of all, there's, there's sort of two layers to what happened to public health. One, one is what have we uncovered that perhaps we didn't know, which in terms yeah. of their ability to to do anything they want quite literally – and I think we actually uncovered something about the training of these people uh, in, in many respects, how they're being trained, who's yeah. in these positions, how inadequate their training is for them, you know, for adult uh, sort of infectious disease, but whatever. Um, you answer this. I have my own opinions, obviously. Yeah. So the, the answer to this is is long and rather complicated. I think there's many factors at work in, that have undermined our public health institutions. Um one of them is our public health agencies have not been sufficiently free of the influence of big pharma and have not been free of the conflicts of interest that that creates. So we can look at our our three, what I call our three-letter agencies. Health and Human Services uh, Department at the federal level has the CDC, which gives public health recommendations, the FDA, which approves interventions in drugs and vaccines, and the NIH, which funds most of the medical research in the United States. So the NIH and the CDC uh, are not supposed to take money directly from Big Pharma. But both of them have set up uh, a CDC foundation and an NIH foundation as a, a way to do an end run around it's like a like a pack, uh, like, a, like a political pack com- com- thing. Exactly. It's exactly yeah, how politicians exactly. do it. So we have millions disgusting, of disgusting, disgusting Pfizer and Merck and so forth. Oh my so we have God. to get we have to get rid of the CDC and the NIH Foundation. This is this is a fact that a lot of Americans don't know about. It. I didn't it's well know about documented. This. I didn't know it's, about it. You can find the information on it online is publicly available. Mm. The other thing that happens at the FDA is you have a revolving door between uh, big pharma and uh, that particular agency. That agency is, they're the real gatekeepers, right? You can't get a drug or a vaccine approved without the FDA. And what happens is the bureaucrats working at the FDA get a big payoff after they spend 10, 15 years at the FDA. They leave the FDA and then they're hired by big pharma. And, you know, there've been studies done actually tracking the personnel showing that 80% of the people who leave the FDA end up uh, making the big bucks at Big Pharma. So this kind of process of a big payout, if I play ball, compromises uh, their judgment. I'm not going to say no to approval of this product uh, because, you know, I want in the next phase of my career, I want to I want to be able to work for these people. So that revolving door needs to be closed. And, and, a lot of let's, industries. But, let's, but it, it's kind of a I, I always find that a challenging thing because um What's his name that used to be the head of Lilly and was the head of HHS uh, most recently in the Trump oh, so administration? Uh, there's Scott Gottlieb, no. who is now on the board of Pfizer and used to be FDA commissioner. Right. So that's a good example. There's a good example of that dire- going that direction. But, 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 but you're kind of making my point. Some of these people are very good. You know, you kind of want them. They, they are ethical people. They are smart scientists. They do know the clinical landscape. It's good that they understand how these drug companies work, so they can understand the belly of the beast a little bit. So, how do you? How do we tease out that advantage at the same time without the undue influence coming in? And and don't get me wrong, I'm I'm disgusted by this sort of um, yeah. In, in, in the uh, not what's another word for like. Uh, 
not intimacy, but the the, the negative of intimacy. Incestuousness. The incestuousness. Yeah, the incestuousness. Exactly. That's the part that disgusts me. But by the same token, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something in here that's not so bad. But how do we do that? Sure. So I think people leaving the FDA need a tail on their contract. Um, I think that would help. Right. Uh, This is done in a lot of industries. You know, you you stop working for us. You can't go work with one of our competitors. You can't go work, um, you know, for someone who's regulating us for a certain number of of years. And we can argue about should that be five, 10, 15 years. But I think some some kind of buffer, some kind of separation um, between, uh, you know, a ruling that someone makes at the FDA on a on a vote to approve something. And, you know, one year later, uh, they're they're sitting in the office of the company that they were just regulating. A reminder about my friend Jordan Harbinger, the Jordan Harbinger Show. There is something for everyone. Jordan, of course, is an interesting guy, speaks multiple languages, wildlife experiences. And as a result, he's able to pull interesting and useful details out of every guest. There's something there's something for everyone in every episode, no matter what you're into. They cover stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan has done an episode about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick. And that's all interesting biology. It covers a lot. But one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful material out of his guests. Each episode is loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind, grow your mind. If that's not worth checking it out, I'm not sure what is. I enjoy the show. You will, too. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The other thing, Drew, that people don't know about the FDA is, again, the FDA should have a firewall between their own funding and the industry that they're supposed oh, to regulate. Well, that, that goes that goes without saying. <laughs> that goes that part is disgusting. Obvious <laughs> and disgusting. Yeah. Most most of their funding now <laughs> comes from pharmaceutical companies. Oh, and federal law now permits them to pay the FDA for expedited <laughs> approval. Like to Jesus. fast track my product, there's a fee. Oh my god. And those fees make up um, I off the top of my head, I don't remember the number. Uh, so I don't want to quote it here, but I know that it's uh, it's more than fifty percent of their of their funding. So that those kind of obvious financial conflicts of interest, you know, we have to we have to deal with so that we can have truly independent regulatory agencies and truly independent agencies that are making public health recommendations. So that's one piece of the public health puzzle. There are many more. Give me another one. For sure. Uh, the other thing that we need to pay a lot more attention to is that much of what was done during the pandemic was done under a declared state of emergency. Uh, During a state of emergency, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers. During a state of emergency in a particular state, the governor uh, assumes lots of uh, additional powers that he doesn't have uh, under the state constitution ordinarily. Uh, so we have a situation in which we have executives like the governor of California or the uh, secretary of HHS uh, with the approval of the president renewing a state of emergency on an ongoing basis. So in California, we're still living under a state of emergency at the state level. And in the U.S., we're still living under a state of emergency at the federal level. It's renewed every 90 days to almost no media attention. Ridiculous. And when Biden... When Biden renewed the state of emergency last time and he published a letter explaining why he was renewing it, the only COVID statistic he cited to justify the state of emergency was the total number of COVID deaths, Jesus, which is a number that increases every month, even when the death rate has dropped sharply. Right. So so the, the problem is we don't have any set thresholds in law uh, in terms of, you know, cases, deaths. How overwhelmed is the healthcare system that could tell us when we're in a state of emergency and more importantly, tell us when a state of emergency is over. And, 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 and so, isn't, it, isn't it the public health that recommends the emergency? Isn't, aren't they yeah, the people? Right. Yeah. And there's, and right. there's so, zero constraints and zero guidelines, as I understand it. This is a glitch in the Constitution that needs to be solved. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's a glitch. Exactly. It, 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 and we, we saw it. Look what just happened. You want that to happen again for some other spurious reason? Or how about if it needs to happen for a good reason? How will we even know it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think we're going to see uh, more states of emergency being declared for other issues that are public health issues or, or issues that have been redefined as public health issue. Climate change is being redefined as a public health issue. It may be declared a public health crisis. There are serious proposals for using rolling lockdowns to deal with climate change um, that have been that have been floated. Uh, so, yeah, we need constitutional checks and balances on the state of emergency because the public health agencies are part of the executive branch in most states and certainly at the federal level. HHS uh, is, is you know part answers to the president. So you have the the president and his or the governor and his public health agencies declaring the state of emergency, gaining the additional powers that that declaration leads to. And we know that people in power are reluctant to relinquish those powers once those powers have been assumed. They're not going to want to voluntarily give that back. And so we need we need a judicial check on the system. Uh, we need to define what constitutes a state of emergency in law so that the courts can say, no, this is no longer is this justified. Happen? Is this going to happen? You can't do this. Well, it's uh, take forever, by the way. It's it's not something that's currently on the uh, political radar of, of most people um, in oh, Sacramento or, or in Washington. It should or be other priority capitals. one. Well, this is this is one of my crusades to help people understand this this legal issue. Uh, we could we could develop uh, legislative checks too. This wouldn't be that difficult. So yeah. the legislature could pass a law saying, okay, the governor can declare a state of emergency that lasts two or three weeks or whatever, right? Okay, we don't have time to get together for a vote. There was an earthquake in California. Somebody needs emergency yeah. help. Yeah. Fine. But after a very limited period of time in which the legislature can convene, we have to get together and we have to vote to approve this on an ongoing basis. And so there's there's at least some uh, legislative check yeah. on the power of the executive to 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 do this, to accrue these additional powers and to just let it go on indefinitely. And what comes in on the that, you know, you mentioned fires and earthquakes and those are specifically recommended by the public health authorities. The problem with the public health authorities, humbly, with peace and love, they are incompetent. Their yes. incompetent was <laughs> their incompetence was in full display. And yeah. it when you have somebody who is incompetent recommending these kinds of sweeping, excessive, totalitarian, let's call them what they are, powers, that is the scariest damn thing I can think of. And we have people in the public health system, in the authority positions, that are either – and we've seen examples of each of these in this pandemic. And by incompetent, let me just give you case one, shutting the beaches down, filling yeah. in basketball hoops and, and skate parks. And then when you're allowed back in, you can go back, but don't put a towel down because that would cause transmission. That, that is incompetence, full-on incompetence in full display. Absolutely. Full discount. That just this, this disgusting level of incompetence. So what we've had, what I have observed, humbly with peace and love, amongst the public health authorities who who have been out of control, I see megalomaniacs that do not like their authority in any way questioned, and yep. and and perhaps that's too strong a term. Just people that are threatened when you try to reason with them yep. and will not consider alternative opinions and work to crush and harm. People with alternative opinions. That's one level. Next level, non-clinicians. Why do we have non-clinicians in these positions? Yeah. They don't know what they're yeah. doing. Then the final is lots of pediatricians in these jobs because yeah. historically, pan epidemics, pandemics, vaccine policy, it's pediatrics. They were the right one for that. But when it comes to an adult illness, their judgment is off. I, I've talked to a number of them, yeah. and they are all freaked out about organ damage and long COVID and your brain yeah. shrinks and all this stuff. 
The body heals everybody. They've everybody's yeah. lost complete faith in the fact that the very people that want the body naturally to heal and not use medication, it does heal. The brain when it shrinks, it does, and then it comes back. And you you get a lung injury, and then it heals. The body heals everybody. The only time I don't see healing is when there's some sort of you know, irreversible hit, myocarditis. We need to be concerned about that because that can be really long term serious. Uh, you know, ARDS to the point that the lung scars up and stuff. Yes, of course, these things need tremendous attention. But generally speaking, for the vast, 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 vast majority of adult COVID patients, you recover and you heal, even if you had long COVID. And the pediatricians don't have that judgment. And none of these people, whichever camp category they fall into, well, it's obvious why the non-clinicians – but they all seem unable to make a risk-reward analysis, which is the fundamental job of a clinician. Yeah. That's your number one job. Use your judgment to make a risk-reward analysis. And yeah. that I didn't see any of that thinking being done anywhere. I saw mass formation, which I may have to do an extra half hour with you to get into the mass formation stuff. Gary, I may have to do a second pod with Dr. Gary if you have time. Do you have time? I have time. We could talk about mass formation. But let me just let me just since you're taking off the gloves and being perfectly blunt. But, but I just I really I don't like that I'm the, saying this is just what is. It's just what is. No, it's, it's just what is. It's I, true. Yeah. I mean, who go again to be blunt, who goes into epidemiology? These are the people that couldn't get into medical school. And there are some notable except, exceptions. There's some very good epidemiologists, physician epidemiologists, and even non-physician epidemiologists. And most of them were very much concerned by the way yes. these people were. That's I, right. I think Jay Bhattacharya is going to be the poster child for how insane this whole thing was. That is a reasoned, excellent yeah. – just a guy who said, "Hey, wait a minute! I, that's I've been doing this. I'm a professor. I've been. Why don't we think about something else? Death to you, sir. Death to you. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. So Jay, who's at Stanford, a good friend of mine, colleague, we, we're working together on on many many projects and policy issues right now. I was just with him in Rome, uh, speaking to a group of legislators from sign. around the world. And, and, and Jay, Jay is a courageous and, and eminently sane and brilliant epidemi epidemiologist." Our colleague Martin Koldorf, who is at uh, who is at Harvard, another uh, signatory of the Great Barrington Declaration, Sunetra Gupta at Oxford. So there there are notable exceptions. Scott and, Atlas, and, 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 and I would Uber. pull these guys away from the Great Barrington thing because that has its own. People start immediately jump on the early treatment stuff. And I, look, these yeah. are just they, the the point is though they laid their position out in that document, thankfully. But their position has never changed. They can just tell you individually what their positions right. are without the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, I, I think they probably – many of them have changed their position on early treatment and stuff except to the extent what both of you and I talked about earlier. The f what's going on with our colleagues? They didn't try something. Why didn't you try yeah. something for God's sakes? But anyway, so go ahead. Jay, Jay who we both agree you know, on. Interesting that we haven't talked about that, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they were they were just laying out traditional principles of public health. Yeah. People need to understand that lockdowns were an untested measure. We act like this was the same. Forget as untested. The Never of thought the of before. Never, Never contemplated until the uh, until you knew. I I've uncovered through talking to lots of people who have been silenced. Kind of what happened. The the CDC and the uh, NIAAI, whatever they are, the National mm -hmm. Institute of Allergy and Immunology, th they talked to China. And they went, what's going on? What's happened? They have colleagues in China. Sure. And to a person in China, under the influence of the CCP, said, we got it. No problem. We locked down. It's working. Zero COVID, man. We're going to do this. But I don't know why you're not doing it. And you, there's email chains of them going, well, we got to do this. We got to do what the Chinese are doing. Th that's where it came from. <laughs> that's, what, that's what happened. The Chinese Communist Party and, and to me when I saw what they were doing in Wuhan, it looked like a local communist leader who didn't want to lose face to the authority. That's right. So doing that's whatever exactly the fuck they right. had to do to not, yep. not bother the authorities with this little thing that's coming. We just, we just do whatever. We'll blow the place up if we have to. Whatever. Uh, and we're going to follow that as our health policy? Oh my God! That's, ex that's oh my exactly God. what happened. I, oh I get into some of this history in in the book. Uh, thank you for mentioning it earlier. <laughs> my my forthcoming book, The New Abnormal, talks about the origins of lockdown in Wuhan and how you know Italy and the United States followed suit, buying into the CCP propaganda that lockdowns had 
squashed the virus in in Wuhan obviously turned out not to be true. Everyone knows now that that was a lie. But once the United States went in that direction and our public health agencies recommended lockdowns, the rest of the world just felt like dominoes. It and, became this and global So, so, so what, what I have uncovered through talking to many of the silenced voices, they, they then went on full attack on anybody that, that had That's anything. Right. I mean, really, they, had to, they were going to try to harm and destroy. Like they're on the record yep. with this. Crazy. And, and the, the thought was – and here's the rational thought. Get to the vaccine. We got to we got to with as few deaths as possible. Let's get to the vaccine. I I get that. I get that. The lockdown bad idea. Never tested, t- didn't work. Let's admit it. Let's never make that mistake again. Uh, tons of people harmed. We're beginning to accrue that data now of all the harm that was done. Yeah. Not a surprise. Could have easily predicted that with a little risk reward analysis. Um, but get to the vaccine, and then once you get to the vaccine, after this rollout part that you and I talked about earlier. Then it so so we're we're in this phase of zero COVID safety uberalis till we get to vaccine uberalis, and once you get to vaccine uberalis, that can't be questioned in any way or discussed in, right. in a rational way, right? Isn't that isn't that what happened? Well, that's that's certainly what happened to me. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I <laughs> my story could be exhibit A for that. Uh, that's right. It, this inability to ask questions, which has kind of been a theme of our conversation, right, from yeah. lockdown situation to the mass vaccination campaign and the mandates and the vaccine passports to this uh, Assembly Bill 2098, the, the gag order on physicians in California. Um, all of this is um, – and I use this word uh, very carefully – and I mean it very literally, all of this is characteristic of totalitarian societies. Now, wh- okay. why do I say that? That sounds overblown. No, I'm, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you because yeah. I'm going to bring you back for another conversation <laughs> because because what Dr. Uh, Matthias, uh, what's his name? Desmond. Uh, Desmond yeah. laid out was he looked at the history of, to- the, the history of totalitarian – he's a psychiatrist or psychologist – this is the history of totalitarianism. What set that up? How did that happen? And that's what yeah. we're going to talk about on the next podcast. So, Great. Dr. Cariardi, sit tight. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. <laughs> you and I are going to keep this conversation going. Uh, I, those of you podcast listeners, I hope I, – I really think it's important for you to share this. Think about it. We are merely two physicians that, A – had this happened to us, we were and we were alive and and, and awake and uh, and questioning all through it, and we've had this experience, and we have talked to, we've seen now all the evidence and talked to all the people that were silenced because I'm you know I, we don't really discuss this yet, but I've been since you and I last talked, which was probably a year ago, something like that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the reason I talked to you was one of your students, who was a friend of mine, said you got to talk to this guy Carriardi. He's pretty cool. And I did not really know what your story was, except that you had been one of the people that was silenced. And I and I just have a natural instinct to go to go to those people and go, what, what happened? Just I I may not agree with them. I talked to Robert Malone recently. I didn't agree with a lot of what he was saying, but sure. I, I I also f- discovered some stuff about <laughs> what actually happened here, and uh, so that's what we're going to keep talking about. We're going to talk about the craziness of all of this in the next podcast. That podcast may have some calls, also, right, Gary? Yeah, probably will, and it'll come out next week. Oh, oh. It will come out next week as next people week, listen as, to this. Yes, yes. As you listen to this, you'll great. hear this next week. So great. Uh, Dr. Cariardi, the book, I let's all go get it, The Rise of Biomedical Surveillance State, because that's where all this is detailed. If you need to discuss it with your friends and family, you can sort of get the data in your head by reading the book and not just listening to us. Uh, again, AaronCariardi.com, at A.K.A. Cariardi, and uh, we'll be back with more of this next week. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 
You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with North Korean defector Yeonmi Park. In North Korea, birds and mice can hear your whisper. It's the only place that modernity hasn't touched. 90-70% North Korean roads are not paved. In the hospital, they use one needle to inject everybody. It's very common to have a surgery without painkiller. The worst torture is being starved. And before you die from starvation, you hallucinate. You lose your mind. So some mothers eat their children because they thought their children were dogs. Because they go crazy when you don't eat. And then they wake up and then like, what happened to my child? Very unique thing with the North Koreans in their dream is always North Korea. You never escape in your subconscious. You're there forever. Every night. Every night I'm there. Like nobody escapes in your dream. To hear more about the bizarre mind games that generations of North Koreans have had to endure under the current regime, check out episode 578 and 579 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. All this month, celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month with Pluto TV. Watch movies with the biggest stars like Eugenio Derbez in No Eres Tu, Soy Yo and Luis Gerardo Mendez in Camino a Marte. Plus, Pluto TV has thousands more movies and TV shows and over 45 channels in Spanish, all for free. So download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming today. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free.